When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, here we go. Welcome to the Hollywood Pipeline Podcast. I'm Dax Holtz. Mr. Adam Glenn is on the other line. How are you, buddy? Buddy, I'm good. I'm good. The show's been going great lately. I've been traveling a lot lately. Things have been fun. Uh, It's cool because New York sucks right now during this time of year. Rockefeller Center is the absolute worst because with the Christmas tree there means a lot of traffic tons of tourists so you can't get around so fortunately for me i'm able to have breaks and get out of new york city and just kind of get out of new york city and just get some warm weather in me so it's been really good i've been fortunate i've been doing some cool trips with some awesome people one of those people uh is actually on the podcast today yes someone who i feel like we've talked about for a long time obviously from our history at tmz we covered a, a lot of news on uh, Miss Annalyn McCord, who you uh, will know she is an actress, she's a writer, director, also known as a crazy cat lady. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but she is on our podcast today. Thanks for joining us, Annalyn. Uh, thanks for having me. I love that you you guys have talked a lot about me because apparently I was on TMZ so much. Okay, listen. <laughs> Listen, you were on quite a bit, quite a bit. I you, know. You know, because you'd be going sisters, out and right? doing, well, you'd be doing the Hollywood scene, going to bars, that kind of stuff. And yeah. so you became a pretty big staple in the Hollywood scene, I'd say. Yeah, it was. I mean, you guys were always awesome. I mean, I, I think that I that was one of the things I had a conversation. It, it wasn't with either of you. It was with a different photographer from TMZ at the time. But he kind of he after like off the record, we chatted because I, I was kind of late and I was I was cheap and I was walking to my car. He's like, you didn't valet. And I was like, I am I am not spending twenty five dollars on valet. He's like, what the hell? That would have like, been such a good story. People love that. That's like, well, that's He's, the human I think, side. Yeah, I think he might have. I, I think he might have wished that he had that on there after the point. But he was nice and walked me to my car, which is really sweet. He's like, "Why are you driving?" I was like, "Cause I don't drink." And I had my first drink when I turned thirty. Um, but so he was like, he said, you know, out of all the celebrities and you know people that we catch up here, he's like, you're always so nice. You talk. You 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 engage. You know, you're you're funny or whatever, whatever. And and I just like one of the things that always bugged me, kind of especially in my early career was that you spend your whole time building up to be able to hopefully make your big break where you're recognizable enough that people might actually take pictures and follow you around with cameras and then you get mad at the people who take pictures of you and follow you around. you're the one who did this to yourself like you know no well, one made that you is so this. refreshing so refreshing <laughs> Especially for a guy like me, it's so smart that you get it and you enjoy you. You know what it is, and you have such a good energy about you. Where like, cause you so you embrace it. It's not like you hide, but you, it's not you. You treat people respect and with kindness, and then therefore they treat you back with respect and kindness. Just like that encounter where a guy walked you to your car. And you know what? I oh, don't really? blame you for walking instead uh, for parking your own car instead of valeting. Because that's my problem with LA. Is it's too much valet. <laughs> too much valet. There's so valet at Taco Bell. <laughs> <laughs> but not only that, like you're right, it's expensive as fuck. 
Like there's it's so many times, man. But I'm looking. On. You pull into a parking lot. It's like twenty five dollars every two minutes. You're like, how is that even possible? So right. I will park five blocks down and walk. I'm the same way. Totally. Oh, and people also need to understand that I'm dating myself a little bit, but this is before Uber. So, <laughs> like, I wasn't trying to get into a cab. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> um, no, but I, I definitely, like, I, I, I've had situations where, I, well, actually, it's really funny. Some of the paparazzi um, who used to live outside, like, stay outside my old house that I lived at when I bought my new house, the one in Marina, years ago, um, I was like, I, I, the one thing I don't want, and I had really bad skin and I didn't like wearing makeup when I was not working. And so I just hated that I would come outside and I always had to wear makeup because I felt really insecure about my skin. And so at my new house, I was like, I'm not going to have someone staying outside my house every day. That's my big goal. So I was like, you know, I got a blind trust. I was all like super stealth. I would see someone following me. I'd get out of my car and the paps would be like, what is going on? Why is she out of her car? And I go, I'd be like, would you like pictures of me? I'm going to walk up and down the road twice, get as many photos as you want, but do not follow me home because I was like adamant that I was not having. And then this guy who, who's a pat, who, who's always at like um, my, all the out like beach locations and night, as you know, he ends up at my house one day, like year, like two or three years in. And I was like, I was so careful. What the fuck? And, and he goes, I said, how did you find me? He's like, you were so hard to find. We had to get a private investigator. I was like, oh, my God. What? I was, so, he literally, yeah, yeah, I'm not kidding. But it was so funny. We laughed because he would show me pictures of his kids. He's like, you're putting her through college. And I'm like, okay, fine. Take a picture or whatever. But, wait, why, <laughs> why did he need to track you down so much? Was there some big story around you at the time that he needed to find no. you? I guess just 90210 at that time was just so we were still midways into 90210 and it was it was such a thing you know like and it was obviously teenagers especially are the ones who are really consuming a lot of that material so they were like that was like he was like you put both my kids through college so thanks like it turned out to be really cool because we ended up when I'd see him I'd just be like hey Kevin like you know and um, and he ended up, he would see me wearing these necklaces all the time. So I'm the president of Together One Heart, which is an anti-human trafficking organization. I've been working with them for 10 years now. And our girls, one of the forms of therapy that we teach them is we teach them art therapy. So we have, you know, like dance, singing, acting, and then they'll also learn things like like sewing or weaving or things that are cathartic, but also allow them just this form of expression without having to necessarily speak from themselves which is hard when you're when you're going through severe trauma to kind of be you it's easier to express in a different way so art is an incredibly powerful form of therapy in that capacity so one of the things that the girls made were these beautiful silk necklaces and they they were like knotted little beads inside and I wore them I still wear them I've given most of mine away but um I still wear them um but he would catch me and he's like you always have these necklaces what are they my daughter loves them and I gave him a few and I told him the story about them. And he told me, he said, look, he said, I know how this relationship can be weird with, you know, people taking pictures of you, whatever. He said, but you've always been so cool. And he said, and honestly, I think it's really awesome what you're doing. So he started donating a percentage. Every time he saw me and photographed me with the necklaces on, he donated a percentage of the 
the money that he would make from those photos to my charity. And so it just goes to show that like the concepts of all, we're all human beings, you know, we're all, you know, here doing what we're doing on this planet and, and you can make it negative and you can make it something, or you can actually find some beauty and then have a sense of reciprocity. And that's really kind of what I've experienced, you know, um, with the, with the dynamic between, you know, being the artist and also being in the press. Wow. I, I no, love that. That's that is so good and so pleasant here. And honestly, you're so right that the guy was able to pay for his kid's college because of your shots. I always said it to celebrity, like, listen, you know, from my days, I, I don't work for you, but because you gave me a minute of your time, I'm able to afford health insurance. I'm able to pay my bill. Yeah. I'm able to afford dinner because you gave me a minute of your time. So it's very appreciative that you're aware of that. But also it's really cool that this guy was also – a preacher of, of you and like saying, Hey, this girl's cool. How can I help her and give you like those good shots, you know, and you totally way street. I mean, listen, it's gotta be respect on both ways. And it's nice enough that you, you got to engage with a guy who was really cool. Um, let me, I want to like, you got so much going on with the charity and stuff like that. So I want to paint a uh, listener, a picture of how you kind of got started, how that came into you. Let's start from the beginning. Where did you grow up? Where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? much okay so it's a super fantasy story of just the best childhood in life it's what everybody dreams of i have a perfect life with a perfect story and everything's perfect the end <laughs> <laughs> which is so completely not true or i would never be an actress um or at least not probably not one that was have had any success um so i grew up in a trailer park uh, we moved about 20 times by the time i left home two months after i turned 15. um so i was homeschooled my entire education so i'm weird as fuck which is you know just goes to show that the stereotype is correct we're fucking weird um and I'll just say we were the more normal ones in the group that we were in. So that's disturbing on every level. But um, but as a result of this, as a result of being homeschooled, I was able to get out of a situation that was not a good home life. And, and I did not have to sacrifice my education because I am a super uber nerd. Um, and Dax, you don't know this, but Adam does to a certain extent because I've talked his ear off about neuroscience and um, during our Tony Robbins week. But I'm obsessed. I was obsessed with math that grew into sciences and, and later neuroscience as an adult when I fall, fell in love with the brain. And my my education was so important to me. So I was able to fully like go through all 12 grades, but graduate early because I just didn't stop. I did all my academics through the summers several years in a row. Graduated in September after I turned 15 in July. And then I said, bye family, I'm leaving. My sister had kind of like run away from home the year before. So I was, I was like, I was the the slightly better kid who, who, you know, did it while everybody knew I was doing it. But, but Angel kind of paved the way, my older sister kind of paved the way for me to know that I could leave early because she took that step and got out. And I moved, <laughs> okay, so back, back, backstory, preacher's daughter okay. moves to Miami and New York alone, lying about her age in the modeling world, going out, and what am I doing? Dancing on tables. What am I wearing? Basically nothing. Like, this was me. Like, I literally was like, woo, I'm free. 
And, and at this point in my life, I don't know, like, I don't have, I, I, I have memories of domestic abuse and that's kind of stuff that I'd gone through. And that was what I was getting away from as far as what was in my awareness at that time. And so there was a, there was an imminent danger, a sense of, I have to get out kind of thing. And and what, you know, oftentimes with, with victims of abuse is that there's a, this over-sexualized sense of energy. Um, so I thought that, you know, that was probably why I was the way I was. And I think that that's why other people kind of gave me a little bit of a write-off that I was this crazy chick because I had a crazy childhood. Um, but I would go on to uh, study in New York for acting. Um, I moved to, I was, uh, I was up there from... 2003 to 2006 and and I like popped down to Miami again for the modeling seasons to continue to save money but it was always my dream since I was nine years old to be an actress everyone was like it's never gonna happen you're a trailer park kid like what's your problem I have a real dream and everyone was like uh what was the oh you have to have a plan b my favorite thing when people oh I love when people told me I need to have a plan b I love that because I was like oh I oh no 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 I do have a plan b it's that plan a is never gonna fail that's what I would tell people when I was a little kid like they're like who is this little weirdo it's an alien. <laughs> um but it's so crazy because one of the big things that was uh, was a profound element of me feeling like having a sense of, I can do this, having one person believe in me, like really, really believe in me. His name was Tony Robbins and he was on cassette tapes. And he told me that I, I could do this. I could achieve this. I just have to close the gap between where I am, and where I want to be. And if you don't get off this couch right now, I'm going to come to an end. I'm going to strangle you. And I will <laughs> never forget this. Like as long as I, I was like, is he really going to come through the headphones? How did he know I was wearing headphones? I could have been listening on the cassette tape player, but I am listening in my headphones. He's watching me um no but I it's so crazy that I had this voice in my head all these years and like kind of you know like a supportive dad in a way that was like you can do this kid um but that it would take hard work and I was willing to put in that effort and ultimately I moved to LA I started working almost right away which is amazing I'm very thankful for that I did have to work at a restaurant like pretty much every actress what, what, what was your first gig because obviously you did nip tuck obviously you did 902 and but what was your very first gig out here oh my very very first gig okay so that was day of the dead um oh well okay I had that was my first full like feature like lead role um my my first actual gig was it was I think this it was either close to home or the OC. So I did Transporter 2 when I was in Miami. Transporter 2, Jason Statham. I was like the girl in the opening scene in the schoolgirl outfit who's like, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> Jason's like, don't you have homework to do or something? I'm like, ah, and I run away. Um, he kicks the asses of all of my friends. I'm like, I'm like this little blonde chick in a gang with a, with a Catholic schoolgirl outfit. Like literally, okay, the, like the suspension of belief is profound. But um, so that was my first first thing. That was but my like, like but, but the thing that I'm like skipping over is how do you come to LA or Miami and land a gig like that? Because there's people that come to LA, hundreds, thousands of people that come to LA every day and they never get a gig like that. 
No, it's so true. And honestly, Dax, I'm just a remarkably incredible actress, and that's really what it amounts. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's it's so true, and I I do feel so blessed. So kind of what happened was I when I was in Miami, I uh, I, I kept being seen for commercials, and they would not send me out. I would I would beg and borrow and steal and plead. I was working in the office because I couldn't. I didn't have any funds. Like as I was building my career, I was actually act. <laughs> this is the funniest part. I'm 15 years old. But just like I think the statute of limitations for them to technically be doing, you know, shady shit is over for them. So I can't get anybody in trouble. But they gave me a job when it was I wasn't supposed to be able to have a job in the state of Florida because I was 15 years old. You can't have a job until you're 16 with a parent's permission and a work permit. I'm all like under the table working in the office as a junior agent and then an accounts table doing billing and collections. I'm like calling up Germany, Guten Tag, wie geht's? You owe us money, remit payment. Like <laughs> this is me at 15 years old, right? So, and I'm like, I take it so seriously. Like this is my fucking work, man. I got shit to do. So I'm like working my ass off two seasons in Miami in the office as well as modeling and saving money. And the second season I end up being put on as chaperone of the models department because then they didn't have to pay like a chaperone. So I'm 16 years old telling the 19 and 20 year old models that they need to stop flushing paper towels down the toilet because there's this thing called plumbing that gets fucked up when you don't use things that, oh, you know, dissolve in water, bitches. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they were very pretty though. Um, <clears throat> no, so I'm like, I'm having to like, leave notes which is like the most embarrassing thing ever because you just like obviously it's me leaving the note and then having to sign it the management obviously it's still me like you know <laughs> so um so basically i um i'm doing this i'm making all this money and i'm in the office colleagues and friends with the the acting department right and I'm begging them, please, all I want to do is be an actress. I love this modeling shit, but, like, please, like, send me out on acting stuff. And just, like, the woman who was representing me at this time just didn't send me out on acting stuff. Like, things were booked. I would literally look at the schedule. I'm, like, blonde, curly-haired 16-year-old. Pick me! Pick me! Pick me! Like, the donkey from Shrek never picked me. Um, <laughs> so, finally, I get sent out on my first acting audition ever. And it's for an unpaid, independent gig for me to play a Latin girl. And I was like, wow, I appreciate that you think I can stretch that far, but okay. Um, not my acting Latin, skills can only go so far. They don't change my appearance. Yeah, like my ethnicity <laughs> is not going to change based on how I um, – but I didn't give a shit. So, of course, I go and I audition for a casting office with an, a casting director named Melissa, Melissa Hershenson. And – she had seen me a million times for commercials where I was like, hi, I'm a model and I'm smiling and pretty and I have no talent. Yay. Um, not saying that models don't have talent because those bitches work fucking hard. But like, that's how you feel when you're just like, hi, I'm pretty. And she was, I auditioned and she's like, why haven't you auditioned for us before? And I'm like, that's what I've been saying. Like, I've been trying to do this. And she's like, We've seen you here for two years. Like, what the hell? You're and she really got behind me. And she then I told her the story, and she was super supportive. And she was she was she's really she's still my agent to this day. We had a little moment where wow. we didn't work together for a, a hot minute, but it was always we both like we're like this is dumb, and now we, you know we work together still. But um, but so with Transporter Two, this bitch, she's a ride or die. I'm telling you. 
literally I show up for the callback, which my agents at that time didn't even tell me about. Cause I was in New York and they're like, we didn't think you'd want to go. I'm like to a callback for like my dream job, you bitches. Um, and she goes, she gets like, gets me there. She's like, they think that they might have too many blondes in the movie. Um, you need to be a brunette. And I'm like, the auditions in an hour, what do you want me to do? And so she literally goes and gets spray hair dye. And this, she's a casting director. She's got other shit to do. She's in the bathroom spray dyeing my hair brown so that I can get this job. It's on my 17th birthday, the audition is. And so she tells Jason Statham, Louis Leterrier, like, um, everybody that was in the room that it's my birthday. So I come in, they all sing to me. Like she has set this up so hard for me. And wow. so I, I will say there, you know, there was definitely, I had someone going to bat for me and it really is that it was extremely, really long story. And I apologize, but I'm an actress. So I'm dramatic, whatever, no. <laughs> but the, but that when you have someone who's in your corner, that changes the dynamic in a huge way. Yeah. It's good to know. That's really uh that's good to know for, for us personally, like it's really important about the relationships you have and someone to really believe in the talent you're able to offer. How did you have so much drive though at that young age? You know, what was in you that's like, man, I need to make this or like, how, how does someone even, was it born with you? Did you always have drive or something like what was so determined? Why were you so determined that at that age? Well, thank you for asking such awesome questions, you guys. Um, I was, I was really driven and I did have this and I, there were times throughout my life where I'm like, why the hell did I care so much? Like, I was just, I was so hell bent on this and you know, it's in kind of coming full circle with it and, and I'll kind of dive into some of the things that have happened to me as a result of my life and, and like what, what's gotten me all the way to where I am today. But, but, um, I, I, the abuses that I suffered caused my body to do something which I would later learning neuroscience and, and the, learn about the brain began to understand deck, you know, 20 years later, whatever. Um, it caused my nervous system to start to shut down in life on a daily basis in order to cope with life. I was disassociative for a good, probably three decades, pretty much until last year. And, and what that meant was that I'm, I didn't feel the way normal people feel like it, something hurt someone. It, I barely registered pain. I had super high tolerance for pain. My skin sensitivity was very, very low. Um, something would, something would emotionally be upsetting. I'd be like, well, that's uncomfortable. Yeah. I would rather they didn't die, but they did. So, oh, well, that was your aunt, like, no, like, you know, like, it was like, it was just not, it was displaced and, and really, really thankfully my aunt's not dead. Please don't say that. Like that was knock on what she's alive. Um, but, but like, I just didn't have the sense of feeling and we, we didn't have a lot of money, but we, we had a dollar theater where movies would come to the dollar theater six months later. Right. And we could watch them for a dollar ticket. And when I went to the movies, I could feel everything. I could, they made me laugh. They made me cry. They made life matter to me. And that was something that I, 
it was, I had to do this. I wanted people to feel, I didn't know that it was a little bit strange that I didn't feel anything all the time. And that that was something that my little body was doing to protect me. But it was so monumental to go into these movies and sit there and, and be able to fully laugh and fully cry and fully feel my sensations inside myself. And I wanted to do that for other people. I wanted to make people happy. I wanted to make people cry. I wanted to make people feel everything. Did, so that was a big part of it. Did when you were acting though, did that also make you feel alive? Like when you're on the yes. other side of it and you're actually in front of the camera, now is did you separate yourself from the non-feeling analin to like the feeling analin? Absolutely. Well, it's interesting you asked that because I I remember times in in situations that would happen in my life where I would be desperate to cry because I felt like something was trapped and I couldn't even tear up. And I was so, it was just like all right here and it just wouldn't come out. And I would do, I would pull up an acting scene or get outside of like a script or something that I, and I would start reading the lines to make myself cry as, as an actor just to have that release and that feeling. So yes, to be, I would just totally come alive. This I got to be something where there was no consequence being myself and being everything that I can be. And also not unlike with my girls, Survivors of Human Trafficking, who with the therapy that we do, the art therapy, it was there, it was cathartic for me. I was releasing stuff I didn't even know I was releasing. It was a little scary that I was super good at horror films because I was like, why are you so good at screaming for your life? This is yeah. not good. Um, so, I mean, I don't know how deep you guys want to go, but diving in a little bit deeper into what's happened in my life. So I worked for 10 years fighting sex trafficking and the work had been incredibly cathartic. Uh, it made me acknowledge a, a moment in my life that I had disassociated from where I was sexually assaulted when I was 19 years old. And I had someone staying over at my house, a friend, and I woke up and he was inside me. And my entire body just froze and shut down. And, and I just, to my knowledge, just pretended to be asleep because I didn't know what to do. And it was very strange for someone like me because not only do I, <clears throat> I play the tough girls, the strong girls, the, I was that girl in life. I wouldn't say I was strong at the time. I would say I was tough. I was the leather and spikes girl on the back of a Ducati flipping, you know, middle fingers to the sky. And, and that was my MO for a long time. So when this happened and I did nothing, I had a really hard time with shame. I just... To, to feel like, like, what was wrong with me? Like, I didn't even fight. I didn't even try. Like, I just laid there and let this happen to me. And, and so obviously, I didn't want to ever acknowledge that it happened. And, and I, my body, my brain to, to protect me once again, disassociated from it. And in the work that I was doing with girls who are survivors of sexual trauma, obviously, it might come up that this happened to me and it did. And, and through the process, I started to finally start to get some healing as a result. And, and five years into going to Cambodia and, and working with my girls, I realized, God, they stand up every time these little girls, five, six years old, and they tell me their stories and, and they pour their hearts out and they're so open and vulnerable. And I'm over here like, Oh, I love you so much. I would never share this, you know, like what's wrong with me. So finally I was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to tell my girls my story. And, and then I'm dealing with the shame of like, it's nothing like sex trafficking, but you know, um, but they've talked about how that's relative and it's all kind of hurts in the same way. And so I get the, 
I get the gumption to tell them and I'm like, you know, going through it and I'm crying and I'm feeling all of it. And they're like, okay, sister, you were raped. Okay. You okay. And I'm like, did I get a hug? Like, what? <laughs> I just like literally told you everything inside me. And I'm like, it's okay. Um, I need some victim coddling like in the West, please. And they're like, no, sister, you okay. You're right. It's okay. And I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> and I would not, it would take some time before I would realize that they saw that I was already okay. I just couldn't see it yet. Yeah. That that all of this pain and all this stuff was covering up who they know I already am, which is that light inside, that spirit, soul, consciousness, whatever you believe. That cannot be diminished. It doesn't matter what has been done to you. It doesn't matter who has made you feel that you, you know, that you are not worth something, that you don't matter, that you're not good enough, that that you're that you're only worth what your body can give someone. Those sort of stories that are put onto onto and around the body that is not what touches the soul that soul is always okay sister and that's what they were letting me know and and so I would think that okay well now I'm doing great now I'm healing and now I'm just enjoying this work and it's so great and then I continue to have these terrible cycles in my life I'm like what the hell is going on like I thought I was getting better and last year I was undergoing a PTSD treatment called EMDR, which is, translates to eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And the point was that I, I had started having these panic attacks that I'd never had before, like full body panic attacks. I mean, I used to think that I, I used to think panic attacks were kind of like, eh, are you just like being dramatic? Take a deep breath. Like, this was, I had literally started mindfulness and, and meditation practices um, seven years ago, so six years prior to this stuff happening. And I was in my one side of my brain saying, breathe, this is a panic attack. And the other side saying, fuck you, there's nothing I can do. And my body was taking over. So I really grew up, a, I grew a lot of empathy and compassion for people who deal with panic attacks on, on a more often basis because this, these were. These were actually experiencing the body in complete and absolute terror, right? So, so this was probably not conducive for daily life. And I was like, okay, I need to fix this. Uh, so I literally plopped down in my this treatment specialist because I had known so much about the brain that I was like, okay, EMDR is the answer. That's about the body. Let's go. So I go and sit down and, and I'm like, look, I have fixed my entire self from here up. I'm fucking good. There's something going on and you need to work with it because I don't know what it is. And she's like, okay, arrogant little prick. Um, we'll fix you. <laughs> no, she's very sweet. But um, but I, I just knew it had to be something in the body. And I really didn't think it was a big deal. I was going to go into, I go to a couple sessions. I learned this stuff super fast because I'm such an accelerated learner. I'm so good at this. And it's all going to be good. I'm going to be fixed. And then we're going to move on with my Monday meetings. You know, like I, I was going to fix this in one session. Um, well, two sessions later, I did two sessions of intake and a third session and I popped the bubble on memories from the time when I was a toddler infant, like very small child that lasted until I was 11 years old. And these were memories of child sexual abuse. And I like, I, I mean, you're, you're in this kind of twilight zone where you're just like, this is not possible. Like, first of all, 
I was someone who had my shit together. Like I knew my brain inside and out. I had studied the brain to such an extent that it was just like, I knew how to create new neural associations, create new neural pathways. I knew how to, to do anything and everything that, re that was required to, uh, I removed I removed acute anxiety from my entire life. I removed social anxiety from my entire life. I do not experience severe depressions. It's not a part of my life because I know how to, um, I don't like the word manipulate in a negative sense, but in a, in a positive sense, manipulate my brain with mindfulness, with being present, like all these different things, like to, to have this massive area of my brain that was just not accessible didn't make any sense to me. And I'm sitting there seeing what was a frozen image. And this is often what it is. So there's always, there's always an image that we go back to in childhood or, or something that that's kind of, that sticks with us. Right. And, and it's the thing that whenever throughout life, when we're really upset or someone triggers something that that same image comes up and we all have a few of them, right? We, it might be someone when someone just really made us feel shameful or someone, but it, it's that same fucking image and it doesn't go away, right? And and so this was that image and an, unlike a normal memory that's a moving picture, it was a frozen image in time. So it, it just stopped. It was like I had memories before it and then I had memories some time after it, but I did, it just stopped in time and what I didn't realize until later was that the actual image in my mind was of me looking at myself. I was 17 feet away from my little eight year old self like that. So by the time my brain had actually taken a picture of the memory, my body had already disassociated. My, my entire, my self had gone out of body because of what was happening to me. So, so this, this whole entire experience was just absolutely surreal and <clears throat> what people don't understand. And that's why I'm very thankful about my, my knowledge of the brain prior to all of this is that <clears throat> you just, you can't grasp it, right? We think, we think that the world is what we know it is. And that's the only room that we give to it. Of course, in the 1950s, I love this analogy in the 1950s, if they thought the world was only going to be what they knew, we wouldn't have an iPhone that the three of us are Skype podcasting on right now. Okay. Like that wouldn't ever exist. Someone has to think far enough outside the box to know that there's more to than what we just know. Right. So it's become my life mission to be a part of that conversation of just because you don't know it or someone tells you that they don't think that's possible doesn't mean that it's not actually going on right now in this moment. And for me to think that I could pull myself out of my own body and look at myself from 17 feet away, wouldn't it be something I would think is possible, right? Well, I would go on to see many memories like that. And, and I would unveil just what would just be over the last year and a half, just an unbelievable amount of, of material that, 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 there is, that it, there is no way in the world that I would have survived if I knew that this had happened. So let me ask you this. So what if you, if you could be a little bit more specific, because so that the incident that happened, I guess, was 18, 19 years old when that guy, you woke up and the guy was in you. That yeah. wasn't the first incident. There was incidents that happened way before that. Can you go into detail a little bit? Because when, you know, and I always say that because when you hear the word sexual abuse, people don't really know what that is anymore, yeah. especially with with the movements going on. Can you go into detail a little bit what exactly happened around, you know, and what, you know, just 
Absolutely. Well, and it's a good it's a good point you bring back because the reason what would then what would then after, you know, a a whole nother decade that that shame had been a part of my story um, following what had happened to me a decade past that was then where I was last year, where I was like, I finally understood why my body froze when I was 19, why I stayed asleep. Because that's what my body had done all these years when I was little, when this had happened to me. So, so yeah. So, in the state of California, due to a lot of the different things that have happened in the last decade or last five years, I should say, they have actually put into law different terminology for what sexual abuse entails. So, so for example, molestation includes touching, fondling, inappropriate touching of the the breast tissue, you know, genital you know, buttocks areas, um, in inappropriate kissing, um, you know, or, or forcing those things onto someone else that's considered, um, molestation and sexual abuse is kind of an umbrella that covers the entire element. Rape is obviously when, um, the, when, uh, penetration occurs and, and that, you know, covers, sodomy and obviously other forms of, of, um, sexuality, um, oral sex and sex in general. Um, so the, what happened to me was all of the above. And, and that was, I was, um, what, what I remember the memory that was the frozen image that I was looking at was the moment that I lost my virginity. And that's probably why it was so terrifying. I would later go on to have, and that was when I was eight years old at my grandmother's house. And that was, um, it was someone in my family that did this. And so the, what that would go on to do obviously would make, make family situations very unsafe but I'm a child at eight years old who's in family situations. Of course, my body is going to continue to protect me as it had already done because I would, you know, last year I would go on to unveil memories much younger than that. And, and I, I dealt with all kinds of things. And this is a kind of a thing that people don't always understand as well. So survivors of this kind of abuse go through a lot of different ways of coping. Some don't ever want to deal with sex ever. That's like, they're just like, stay away from me. Chastity belt. Fuck you guys. Like, no, thank you. Nobody. Um, And that goes for men and women. I have several male friends who, you know, who this has happened to, especially when it's happened to them as a child. And they're like, uh, like, they'll talk to me and be just be like, I want to be, you know, intimate with my partner, but I just. I just leave. And then that my partner feels like that I don't want them and they feel undesired. And I don't know how to do this without feeling like a piece of trash or cheap. And, and that's the, that's the part that, you know, obviously we all relate to in different ways is that feeling of, am I worth something? Right. So, and then I have men who are, who like me went the opposite direction. So I went the fuck this. I'll have casual sex. Don't get close to me. Don't fall in love with me. Fuck you. 
And, and I went in and, and I had to keep up in the ante because of my skin sensation and my lack of feeling in my body. Nothing felt enough. So I needed to keep going and going. I went on, I had a dungeon in my house. I was into severe BDSM. I could be fully sadistic and fully masochistic. I was into all kinds of dark stuff, including like, you know, using weapons, like all kinds of stuff. Like they're just, I, I could never get enough. I was insatiable. And, and the, the sensation level was never, ever, ever, ever. I just couldn't get to that level that was would, that would ever be, um, satisfying. So, so what I uncovered last year was a direct correlation between what happened to me and every fetish I ever had. So if you can digest that, happening to a child it's pretty fucking horrific right so so this for me was the just the entire like holy shit tip of the iceberg because what happened as a result of me remembering this connecting those dots remembering things that are things of documentaries and horror films and not shit that happens to people you know and definitely not shit that happens to you right mm -hmm. so connecting all these dots i've now made another connection this little girl that was trapped inside of me, who was frozen in time all these years, right? The little girl I could see from 17 feet away, she, her consciousness was trapped in me because I never got to fully grow her up. I split into a different energy that would start to protect me by coping by not remembering. This is the part, the stuff that people have a hard time understanding because it's it's not stuff that's easy to prove, right? You, you experience it, you get it, you know, and people who deal with people who have multiple personality, like EID, Dissociative Identity Disorder, they understand it, doctors understand it as being a split at a point in time when it was too traumatic to remain in that original energy field. It's split into another energy, and that can sometimes present itself as di different personalities. Well, so, So... Yeah, let me say, when, let me back up real quick. So when, when that happens to you at eight years old, did you tell anybody or did you tell your mom? Did you tell did you tell your grandmother where it happened? Did you did you talk about it to your teacher? Well, you couldn't tell it to your teachers or homeschooled, but who, yeah. who, who, who do you talk to about that? Well, so and that's thank you. That's another great question. So you're as that child who this happens to. It's a, it's not just like oh well one off and someone's like oh I'm gonna rape a child right? It's it's, hey, do you want to be a good girl? Do you want to be a big girl? Oh, da -da 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 -da. it's grooming, right? So, and it's like, no, this is our little secret. And if you ever tell anyone, people can get hurt. And then suddenly the little seed of people could get hurt. Who's going to get hurt? Like, is my mommy going to get hurt? Is my best friend going to get hurt? Is my kitty cat going to get hurt? Like, all of these things are scary things, right? So for me, I was made to believe that I would die literally and and figuratively in the sense of you know energetically i was clearly dying a piece of myself was dying but i had i almost died at one point when i was six years old to asphyxiation while this was stuff like that this was going on by this person wow. and so the what happens to the survival instinct in the body the the what reliving and I did fully relive like I relived having that rope around my neck it lifting me up and I'm talking my 31 year old adult body lifting me up and toppling me over which is the reason that people claim there's demonic whatever you know possession it's it, 
It's not. It's someone reliving trauma in a body flashback in a seizure, like convulsion type way. They relive. So my entire throat closed down. I could not get oxygen. I couldn't breathe. I, I felt something as if it was there, the, the intensity of pressure around my neck, tightening and tightening and literally picking me up and pulling me up and toppling me over upside down. And this would have got, this happened many, many times in my doctor's office, but this also happened at my house. So I couldn't be alone, obviously, when this stuff had first started, because anything could trigger me and my body could go into one of these memories and relive stuff. And it could be dangerous. I hit my head a couple of times and, and had contusions as a result. So I had to have people around who could put like, you know, who could um, you protect bit. my head. And yeah, exactly. So, um, but I, I was so, going to yeah. ask, so like you were talking about how you, you go through this trauma when you're young, your brain then as a protective measure cuts out a lot of these memories. My question though is growing up, do you still, did you have negative thoughts towards your abuser or was that also blocked out until recently? Another fantastic question. Thank you. You guys are welcome to do interviews with me all the time. Um, these aren't just like, so how did it feel to win the game today? Well, it sucked. I hate winning. Like, <laughs> what kind of question is that? Um, I love that question. Thank you so much. The, the answer is a very common answer for most um, victims of this, which is not only did I not think anything negative towards this person, I actually had an affinity for this person well into my adulthood. And, and that was the, I, out of all the things that I processed in my trauma, reconciling my affinity for this person, I was talking to this person and I literally like, I, I'm talking to this person like, I don't know, once every week and a half, maybe, maybe every two weeks, sometimes it'd be a couple of months or whatever, but like, I always, this person was a big fixture in my life for most all of my life, for all of my life, I would say, pretty much. And and I never knew. Like, this is what is so profound, and this is what people can't grasp. They really have a hard time understanding that this can be. And it is the kind of the Stockholm Syndrome. Also, what was used against me was... Um, was oxytocin, right? I'm a, I'm a female. So a bonding thing when the female body orgasms is oxytocin. And that was used in a very, very tactical way to connect me to this person. And, and that was something that I could never have with a man in real life. I would just be like grossed out. Like, don't do like, I would just like get sick to my stomach. I did not want to, you know, I, I was okay. Like not to get TMI. Um, but like, internal orgasms I could that was fine but like out exterior like that was just like I was just like I was one of those girls who faked it so I was like just make it end like stop I don't want you to be there go away like okay that was amazing you're like you're so amazing I have so much oxytocin for you please don't ever do that again um but it was I and I laugh and I make jokes you know because you in order to you know find the find your way out of this, you find light, right? And, and one of the things that I learned from my girls in Cambodia is their morbid sense of humor has given me so much light in my life because this, this they, they are right, and, and this is true for anyone listening or anyone going through this, you are okay and you will find you are okay if you look and you search and you peel back those layers of all the things that have told you that you're not. And I 
I am okay to bring in this humor and bring in this sense of, of joy with my story and compassion for my story where I can look at something that was really horrible, but also have a sense of compassion, which I do now have for this person who did this to me. I just, I, my, my entire heart goes out to anyone who has to carry the level of guilt that you have to have to do this to a beautiful child. Did you, did you ever confront this person after all this had come out? Dax, wait, hold on. Before you go on, before she answers this question, our producers tell us we need to take a break. Do you mind if we cut this episode into another episode, into two pieces? uh, I actually really want to know the answer to this question. So, um, all right, we'll pick it up next week and uh, and kind of get the rest of the story because I don't want to let her go. She's good. She's so good.